Hello and welcome to Pod Pod. I'm Rihanna Dillon, your host, and on the podcast this week, we are talking to Tash Walker and Adam Smith, who are part of Aunt Nell Productions, along with Shivani Darve. So I've been really looking forward to interviewing the people behind the Logbooks podcast, an archival podcast which delves into the notes written in logbooks by volunteers for Switchboard, which is an LGBTQ plus organisation which takes calls from people in need. And I came across it a couple of years ago and it's such a simple idea and as with some of the most simple ideas incredibly effective moving and of course a ton of hard work and Aunt Nell Productions have taken their experience with the logbooks and have created a new podcast called On the Record for the National Archives so of course we pick their brains about just how to make an archival podcast so I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. But before we get to them, I'm joined by Reem Makari and Adam Shepherd. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Oh, I love your winter jumper, Reem. Oh, thank you. It's so cozy. It's time for <laughs> fall, you know. I've yet to relinquish like my Barbie pink t-shirt. Like I'm not letting go of this just yet. I'm not ready for, for autumn. Yeah. At all. Fair. I refuse. Yeah. What's going on in the world of podcasting, Adam? So YouTube last week announced that podcasts on YouTube music are rolling out in the UK. That means things like being able to listen without a subscription to YouTube Premium, being able to listen uh, in the background with your screen off, being able to download episodes for offline listening, and all of the usual podcast features that you would expect from the likes of Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever. This is to replace Google Podcasts, which is being sunset next year, I believe. And it's Google's big play into the podcasting world to try and capture some of that that market share. Reem, forgive me if I'm being incredibly naive here, which I absolutely am. But once people already kind of have their favourite like podcast apps and they have everything downloaded there, why would they now go to YouTube at such a late date to find their podcasts? Besides, you know, the advantage of having video podcasts, which I think is the first thing that people think of when they think of YouTube podcasts. Mm -hmm. I personally don't really see a big reason to move to YouTube as your preferred podcasting platform if you already have a different preferred podcast platform. Like I think some companies like Spotify, for example, they recently added audiobooks onto their mm-hmm. platform and it's part of a, a part of their subscription. So now they get 15 hours of listening to audiobooks per month. I think that's a good reason to be like, oh, I'm going to stick to the app because they're offering me more things that mm. other platforms aren't offering to me. And, and you know, they also have exclusive podcasts on the platforms. So I don't really see a reason to switch currently. I think for me, one of the big plays that they're making with this isn't so much to try and lure uh, people from Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever onto YouTube Music, but it's to try and bring more uh, of YouTube's existing audience into podcasting. It's worth remembering that Google makes a huge chunk of its money from advertising in various forms. They will have seen the trend in terms of the growth of podcast advertising, and they will be looking to capitalize more on that by getting into the podcast advertising game themselves. This kind of unicorn 
listener of somebody who is a podcast listener but also wants to watch podcasts we talk about them a lot i feel like i've never met one in person i will say what i am excited for for youtube to be doing is integrating rss feeds into the platform which they're set to finish rolling out by end of this year that's going to help podcasters in terms of how they look at their data because then they won't have to add YouTube views on top of their podcast download data. It will all be in just one place mm-hmm. and they won't have to separate it anymore. So I think that's going to be a big advantage for them when YouTube does finish rolling that out. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting experiment. We'll keep an eye on it, see how it's going in a few months. Okay, it's time now for me and Reem to speak to Tash Walker and Adam Smith from the Logbooks podcast and On The Record. Here they are. Tash and Adam, welcome to PodPod. How are you guys doing? Good, thank you. Great, yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a real treat. I know Reem has been really excited and I remember listening as a judge for the BPAs and listening to logbooks and remembering how special it was. You know, it was like a sort of instant, this is incredible podcasting. So I'm really delighted that I get a chance to interview you. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> So at the time, I don't think it was under your production company, Aunt Nell. So can you tell us about how Aunt Nell came to be? So Aunt Nell grew out of the logbooks, basically, founded by me and Adam, who are here today, and also Shivani Dave. And we all met through the logbooks and working on that. And off of the back of that, we love working together. And we specifically loved what we'd been doing, which is finding these untold or censored or hidden histories specifically with the logbooks in queer archives and we wanted to be able to create a space where we could continue that work under its own brand if you like or label and out of that grew Aunt Nell. Aunt Nell the name you may be wondering is it a shared aunt that we all have? (laughs) No it wasn't. Is it a name of someone's animals? No it's not. Uh, Aunt Nell means listen in Polari. So Polari is this language that was really popular in early 20th century that grew out of Cockney rhyming slang and Italian, I believe. Oh. Many of the words that we'll know today, like drag, all derive from Polari. So it was this language that was used among predominantly gay men and queer communities, very much the underground scene. And it was a way that they would communicate to each other. And Art Nell means listen. So it felt like the perfect name for our podcast production company to hint at not only our interest in archives and archival history, but queer archival histories and also ourselves as as part of the wider queer community. I love that description. And Adam, perhaps you can kind of talk us through the logbook's beginning, because you say you all met there. What did that involve and why, you know, it's to do with switchboard, but some people listening might not know what any of this means. So just give us a little brief rundown. Yeah, of course. Well, in 1974, a bunch of quite radical gay and lesbian activists had kind of burnt themselves out doing quite intense political actions and also were thinking about how 
also to support the community, their community, their family. And so they set up a thing called Switchboard, which is a helpline for any questions and information about anything to do with gender and sexuality, you know, in the UK. And so now it's called Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. And so it's been going for nearly 50 years now, staffed by volunteers on the phones, members of the community, serving, helping members of the community. And obviously, we have to remember before the internet, before computers were in our hands, before computers were even on our desks, the volunteers had to find a way of keeping records and also continually absorbing information that they were taking in and recording how they were giving it out and what issues were coming up on those calls. So they had a system called logbooks, which was just handwritten notebooks. And they kept these notes often making notes after phone calls from people saying things like, I've been kicked out of home because my dad found out I'm gay and I'm in Birmingham. Where do I go tonight? Uh, Questions like that or things like, are there any lesbian bars in Bristol, for example? So they had to have a record of that. And so they kept these logbooks for years, for three decades. And Tash was a volunteer for Switchboard for quite a few years, up until a couple of years ago. And during that time, she found all these logbooks and made a project out of it by just making sure that they were preserved and that they were held in an archive at Bishopsgate Institute, but then also talking about them publicly. And I saw her at one of those talks. And that was how we met because I went up to her afterwards and said, you've got all these amazing notebooks, all these handwritten notes from LGBT history and life. And they're based on phone calls and conversations with people. So I think we should make a podcast. So we started work on that. And then we pulled in our third producer, Shiv. And that was how that podcast began. We just set about how to tell these rich histories, really, using that archive of handwritten notes and how also to make sure that we're doing that with dignity and respect and, of course, the confidentiality and anonymity that comes with a sensitive archive like that. What were some of the main challenges that you faced with working with work that's archived? So I think one of the main things that jumps to mind, and I think it's a very complex area, is that when you look back in history, you so often put the lens of today on the past. And so it's really important, uh, and we made lots of decisions around this, to hold the archive in true stead in that moment in time that it was written in this case. And actually, the logbooks lend themselves so well to this because it's not a picture, it's someone's written words. Um, We decided to keep the language the same as the time that it was written and with a reference to it being archaic language. So many of those terms are offensive today and quite rightly so. But the logbook entries used them because it was the language that was used at that time. Language has also moved on, especially when it comes to the LGBTQIA plus communities in and of itself. That acronym was gay back then when it started. So we always kept the logbook entries true to how they were in and of themselves. I suppose at this period of time when we were making the logbooks, so I'm I'm still technically a volunteer at Switchboard. I was also on the board at that time. Part of my role within the podcast creation was to be, I guess, that representative of the ethical side of things from Switchboard's point of view. And this is a very sensitive archive. Like Adam said, Switchboard is and always has been a confidential and often anonymous service. So We had to hold the archive with that protection around it, which meant changing names, changing identifying details. 
Now, the logbooks don't go into like specific details. It wouldn't say Tash, who lives in XYZ and mobile number, but it could say Tash, who is an audio producer in East London. You know, and, and that is enough information, but also whether it is or not, we wanted to respect what Switchboard had created and also what those people contacted Switchboard for. So we would change names and, and things like that. But I mean, what is so incredible about the logbooks and the archive is it is that I always go on about this, but this living, breathing diary, it's a, an insight into this exact moment in time on the you know 26th of June 1976. It is how someone felt in that moment in their handwriting with all of the pain and anger that comes out in your writing that you just don't see these days in texts. Well, no tone Mm -hmm. aside. Yeah, they were really, really beautiful and incredible resource to sort of uplift that. But I guess what we also wanted to do was make sure that we weren't coming in as 30-somethings telling queer histories that so many people who had lived that to that time have you know been talking about for years or have not had the opportunity to share their stories so it was through that lens of inquisitiveness that we went in to look into the archive but also to speak to people who had lived through those years so that they could tell the stories that were in the logbook so that they could bring them to life not just us retelling them through these logbook entries but inviting the people who've walked down those streets who've lived through those those calls who've taken those calls who've been at the other end of the phone speaking to someone who's dying from you know AIDS whilst living as a gay man in the 80s so that really really helped to bring colour to the whole of the logbooks and bring them to life there's a lot of sensitivity and things I'm you know I think we could talk about that for a long time I think another challenge would be blending all the different feelings and experiences and tones as well because like some of those stories that we've mentioned so far are pretty dark and they're about people going through really difficult times which is true of individuals who've who've phone switchboard and of course the lgbtaq plus family as a whole but there are also like funny things that people go through that they talk about or silly things and so a challenge creatively for us was to include the full breadth of feelings and experiences and also doing that in a way that didn't feel like jarring like going from someone dying to you know something funny happening for example yeah so that was another challenge also like off of the back of that it kind of lends itself to what Adam was saying, what we talked about earlier. But And this, I think, is something that should be a concurrent theme across, well, lots of the work that we do around archives is not putting a rose-tinted lens on the past. Mm. So looking into those archives and, you know, this this organisation and the archive, is, it's a microcosm of what was happening in wider society. So there are sexist entries, there's racist entries, there's transphobic, biphobic ones, and and not to sugarcoat it to acknowledge that in the context of what was happening outside of that time. I remember at the queer podcasting event at Apple that I attended and you did a session on the Logbooks podcast, there were two entries that you showed. One of them was a bit on the darker side and it was slightly more heavy. And then you ended the session on a very happy entry. And it just, I think it made almost everyone in the crowd start like tearing up. It was just a very beautiful entry. And I think it's really nice seeing that that contrast and seeing that, you know, even during um, that dark period, you still had those entries that were still very positive too. Yeah, I mean, it's survival, isn't it? Like life, life is painful, but it's also full of laughter. And one of the things, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to like the queer community's experience specifically here, but when you're talking to those people who we interviewed and you're looking in the logbooks in the archive, it is really complex, but so much of survival in human nature is to 
bring a lightness to it and bring that laughter. And like Adam said, you find that littered throughout the logbooks. I think, Reem, the entry you're talking about is a valentine that a caller rang up and left a switchboard, which is just so lovely and sweet and um, and romantic as well. Yeah, that's adorable. Yeah. Adam, you, I just want to pick up on something that you said earlier about the, the sort of medium, I suppose, because it's really interesting how you've gone from, as you said, these are phone calls, so kind of like an audio medium, to the logbooks, which are a physical one, to the logbooks podcast, which again is audio, and now you're turning that into a book, which is a physical medium. So just in terms of how that archive for you has gone through this kind of like series of changes and shifts and what it will look like in a book form and how it has changed from those very first phone calls. Well, Tash and I really agree with recycling. (laughs) It's the really right thing to do. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's a good point there that these stories Mm. have gone through all these different forms. There's another form, which is also an audio form, which is the form that stories took when they were told to us by those who we interviewed for the podcast, including sometimes volunteers or former volunteers who were talking about the logbook entry that they wrote down 30 years ago. And obviously, our memories are kind of like not trustworthy. Um, they're, you know, they're selective, we, we build our memories over time, and they change on all that time. And that's just a theme that Tash and I also really enjoy thinking about. And I think that's probably something that we are going to start thinking about now that we're working on a book, because it's also about, it's a bit about memory and collective memory, um, and also the stories that different generations tell to each other and how they tell each other. But I do think that there are obviously pitfalls there. I think you've got to be careful not to go too far away from the original source. And so Tash and I, are, because we're now starting work on a book, we're, we know that we're going to be using a lot of the same logbook entries that we used in making the podcast. But we've actually started a process of going actual back to scratch, going back to those logbook entries that we've mm-hmm. used already and like re-engaging with them. And also looking at the broader archive, including the ones that did not get featured in the podcast for one reason or another, so that we're kind of like starting all over again and going back. And I just think that just naturally feels like the right thing to do and the right way to handle an archive, because I think you could otherwise lose the thread or you could lose the essence, really, of what an archive item is you know, it can, it gets diluted over time just and through different formats, just as much as our actual memories in our minds do as well. We're also adding another lens, aren't we, Adam, Mm. within it, because their process of making the podcast was archiving in itself. And so um, for the book, we're going back and reflecting on that process as two 30-somethings who are children of Section 28, educated entirely underneath that piece of legislation which was uh, brought in under Thatcher that said effectively homosexuality couldn't be promoted or talked about in schools. And there's a lot of censorship involved. And that went from 88 to 2003. And that was our education. So there's, there's a theme that came out of the Logbooks podcast, which isn't necessarily in the podcast in itself as loudly, which we'll be talking about in the book, which will be us as children of Section 28 finding our histories ourselves and this being a process of, what the hell? Why didn't we know this stuff? So there's like conversation that's happening there as part of it too. I still find it unbelievable because I'm also a child of that and not having learned about that at school, it's 
but I was lucky enough to be raised in Brighton in a very mm. kind of friendly environment and was very aware of it. Thanks to my parents who were like teachers, social workers, you know, very kind of open. So I had to, I, like, I guess that's why I hadn't quite perhaps realised mm. what a blanket there was over this. A lot of what Adam and, and I and Shiv too did after, well, throughout the making of the podcast and also after it finishing and still almost now is, is mm. lots of talks I mean, yeah, I did the the one at Apple that you were there, Reem, for, but we've done so, so many much longer talks, you know, at universities or at schools within corporate environments for their LGBT plus networks. And we get invited by someone who's listened to the podcast, but lots of those people haven't. And it is something about us putting up the logbook entries on the screen and, and reading them to them that they're engaging. And we also, off of the back of the final season, made a school assembly we got the funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund for LGBT History Month. So we created something that in our mind, we never thought, well, certainly was never available, would have been illegal to make when we were at school. And we shared that and that was used. And so it's it, it, the, the logbooks already, the, the brand of the logbooks, if you like, has already got this life that's growing outside of it. And, you know, to, to create a book that adds to that, that could be in schools, that could be in the library, that, that someone can then access is yeah I mean it's it's great right Adam <laughs> something that we've been really wanting to do for a while yeah with the talks that you're doing I know that you mentioned that you're still a volunteer at switchboard did you notice that a lot of people were also volunteering more after listening to the podcast or wanting to volunteer I used to be one of the co-chairs of switchboard so I was on the board for eight years it's quite a lot long time of very heavy involvement and I've stepped back now but yeah I met lots of people who said that they had listened to the podcast and that had brought them to Switchboard, uh, which is just amazing, isn't it? Yeah. What a legacy. Yeah, yeah. And in and of itself, there's a whole separate podcast, which is about, you know, a charity or an organisation making a podcast as a marketing Mm -hmm. tool because it really has been for Switchboard and it's raised the profile for Switchboard. It's brought people to Switchboard. It's brought funds to Switchboard. It's increased its profile when it comes to its history. They're still using it today as a resource Uh, for education around the charity. I know that now when Switchboard go out to do talks, they say, here's a brief history about Switchboard and now go listen to this podcast. So it's really cool that we were a part of that and that we made that. (laughs) Amazing. And you mentioned just now uh, National Lottery funding. Are there any other kind of funding programmes or resources that you've looked into that you've kind of been able to take advantage of? When we started the podcast, we didn't know exactly what we were doing, how much it was going to cost us. Yes, we were sort of three of us working on it as kind of self-employed people, although we all had like other work and other jobs to do. But we were kind of working on it thinking like, you know, well, look, this is just something that we want to make for us. That said, there was some money that was available within Switchboard that was sort of money waiting for a purpose in a way. And so we actually made a proposal to Switchboard to use that money, to put that money into the podcast, but still retain a sort of degree of distance between our production and switchboard that we were not just an arm of of switchboard so that was really handy to help us kind of get going in the first season by the time of we were starting to work on the second season the first one was out so we knew what it was we could demonstrate to the world this is what this is if you think this is valuable that's great that's when we applied for the national lottery heritage funding and the decision was due in the spring of 2020, just when we w- would have been starting work on season two. 
that's when the pandemic hit. So the Heritage Lottery Fund like just stopped all of their activities. So we didn't get that money. We had to continue making season two anyway. And we drew a little bit more on that money that was still in the, the original pot. Um, so then when it came to doing the third one, that's when we applied and got National Lottery Heritage funding. So that season was the first and the only season out of the three that was like fully funded by a funder. We didn't look in detail at other options really because we knew A, that one was the best chance for us getting it. I think that was probably the only reason really. Also though, we did pitch it to loads and loads of people. I think it's worth saying and said, do you want to sponsor it? Do you want to be someone who advertises with us? And no one wanted to. So I think that's, we really tried hard with that. And I think that's worth acknowledging that they just did not want it, whatever the reason, LGBTQ+, I don't know, uh, they did not want to put money towards it. So, yeah, like Adam said, it was the Heritage Lottery Fund, some direct donations to Switchboard for that purpose. And then also we had a small pot of money that we got through ACAR supporters. So we put a link out on our podcast. And actually, we were really overwhelmed by how much money we received. Yeah, that did contribute to season three, didn't it? Yeah. And the events. Yeah, it did. And it went towards us, yeah, being able to to do some things that we wouldn't have been able to, which is great. I also think this is where we can get like super pod pod industry nerdy. Do it. Um, because I do think it's an interesting thought experiment to think how that pitch that we made towards things like sponsors and brands would have gone down like just maybe shifting two years later than when we started because kind of just before we started or just as we were starting the industry was like the podcast industry which by that point was starting to include the absolute mammoths like Spotify and Amazon more and more investment aka free money was being pushed into that and into content At the same time, the ad tech was starting to get better underneath, you know, about how ads were being inserted into podcasts. And companies like Acast were investing a lot of money in that. And then at the same time as that, brands and stuff started doing this massive push for branded podcasts and for sponsoring podcasts. And so I think if we had come along at the right time, or maybe it's just a question of connections, that we might have ridden off the back of that. Um, Now, all of those things are retrenching. All of this investment is going down. Brands I know are seeing that their advertising or that their branded podcasts have not delivered on what they wanted it to. Spotify is, I don't know whether it's regretting its $1 billion bet on podcasts, but it's certainly pulling back on how much money it's spending on podcasts now and making lots of cuts and things. So I think things have shifted over the time period that we're talking about. And where this lands us right now is Aunt Nell as a company that was founded in 2021 over the past year just as this retrenchment in investment and the tech companies has really started to take hold, where it's landed us is that as a very like tiny independent production company with a focus, which is, you know, which doesn't have a massive audience. We cannot promise to deliver you 10,000 listeners per episode or something yet. Where it's landed us is that we've, you know, we're working on three, three and a half, four, depending on how you count it, 
projects that could become podcasts. Two of them are funded by a grant in partnership with other organizations, not brands, not companies. Another one, maybe two, we'll be making like off our own back. Um, it's our own investment of time and money into it. I'm not a victim. I'm not saying like, you know, oh, no brand like wants to play with us. But I think that there are shifting sands in this industry. And if you're an indie like us, then you have to recognize that and build that into your planning, I guess, or your thinking. Yeah, it's probably worth also acknowledging that the Audio Content Fund closed, which we made black and gay back in the day from... That's true. That was an incredible pot of money funded by the government. And I think that mm. there should be space for more funding via the government as well. I think, yes, there's brands. Yes, there's the bigger platforms, but there is that as well. Because you've tried different types of funding and you've received, you know, grants and donations. What has worked best for you and what are some of the pros and cons of these different types of funding because there's even ones that include mentorship as well and it's not just funding and they'll provide like actual resources too and some of them are more kind of hands-off so what do you think are the pros and cons of them i guess with us it all depends on the partnership doesn't it of the funding and what's required as part of that making things for monies that have come from the heritage lottery fund are linked to and have to be linked to a charity or a museum, something that holds a piece of heritage. So we, as Art Now, can't apply for that ourselves. We are a partner of an organisation that's applying. So Switchboard, as an example, or we're making one at the moment for the Pink Singers, who are an LGBTQ plus choir who are celebrating 40 years. Now, they applied for funding for part of a bigger project. And as part of that, they are bringing us in as a partner to make a podcast. So number one, that's complicated because you have to find a partner. There's an organisation called Press for Change, which brought about the Gender Recognition Act. And we really want to make a podcast on their history and their archive. But the archive is owned by an individual, Stephen Whittle, who can't apply for funding directly from the Heritage Lottery Fund. And neither can we. So we're at this impasse around finding a route in which you can get funding on that specific front. Then you've got sponsorship and brands. And I suppose it's about how much creative control they have around the podcast and the content that you're making. And then you have commissioners, you know, if you make something for one of the big audio platforms or providers, what do they and what don't they want to feel comfortable with what you're creating? So I guess it's about the restrictions that are in place with what you're trying to make that always make things more complicated. Ultimately, the podcast Adam was talking about that we'll be making ourselves, we're the ones making all of the creative decisions on that editorial all the way through to the creative. Everything will be signed off by us. But I suppose the the bigger the funding, the more restrictions that you have around it. I think unless you have money in the bank, that's your own money that you're spending on making something, then it's just a question of like what compromises you have to make. And I don't want that to sound like a negative word because it can be really fruitful to have partners and collaborators and funders. Starting two years ago up until last year, I was on a, the first round of the BBC's scheme called Audio Lab, which was to develop independent producers to make their idea, to make a short series that was their idea within the BBC world and have all of the support from the BBC. And that was great because as a self-employed producer, it employed me <laughs> for like probably more than half of my time for a year. And it was my idea and it gave me a lot of freedom to make the podcast that I want to make and the, the money, obviously, and I had budget to spend. And it came with this support from the BBC, like the mentoring that you're talking about, Reem. On the other hand, it was working with the BBC, which was not at all uh, straightforward. You know, their legal risk 
level is different to the legal risk level of something like Artnell, which is an indie. But it did come with all those benefits. On the other hand, it also wasn't the best at marketing my eventual podcast because, you know, the people that work in marketing and publicity at the BBC have to do that for 10 podcasts a day. Whereas if it's my podcast and it's it's an Artnell production, like I know that we're going to put everything that we have behind it. Mm. It's also worth talking about pitching. We can pitch the BBC as part of their commissioning rounds and we have done that. We haven't had a successful pitch yet, but that's a really hard door to break down as an independent because you have to have two podcasts out there already Mm -hmm. as part of your production company in order to be able to be accepted into becoming someone who can pitch the BBC. You know what? I actually don't think that that's a bad gateway, personally. I don't think it's bad, but if people are starting an independent production company, they wouldn't be able to access that funding for two podcasts. I think that's fine. My problem with how the BBC is commissioning currently, I know this from people there as well, is that it's not really open to ideas. It's not open to pitches. You know, commissioners and controllers decide what content they want to have, and then they make a shopping list, and then they put out a call for that content, essentially. And so if you're working on something that's like that, then great, you can chuck it in. But for sure, you'll have to like probably create an idea create a pitch for the thing that they're shopping for which i think is not the most creative innovative use of our national public broadcasting and commissionings process here here <laughs> i completely agree with that you've teased these future projects i wanted to ask you about the national archives you're involved with so can you tell us about what you've got lined up next Yeah, so the National Archives, that one we've been working on for six months or so. And as part of that, we won a contract to work with them for two years and to become their production company for their podcast, which is an existing podcast called On The Record, which we now have taken over and produce alongside the National Archives. At the moment, we're doing one-off little episodes that are digging into their archives that they have there and, and bringing up some of the things that aren't so well known to be a part of the archives at the National Archive, but also things that are in line with what they're doing in their wider exhibitions and their exhibition spaces there. So we made one on Windrush at 75 earlier in the year. We just made one on the Women's Land Army, which was the last one that came out. And we're currently working on one which is about inventions. They're just amazing. They're fascinating. The National Archives, what that is, is the government records archives, basically. So you don't find, although there are some in there, you don't find newspaper clippings and lots of people's stories. But there are things like the landing cards for Windrush. They're part of the National Archives record. So you can see the people that were on the boat and then you can track them through different places as one became a nurse and then see where she moved in her career as a nurse for the Women's Land Army. What they do have in their records is this amazing magazine called The Land Girls, which grew out of the Women's Land Army communication between each other. And it's full of poems and letters and fantastic pictures. Uh, And the inventions, one we're working at the moment, they hold the patents to these inventions. But the inventions are, you know, before we even thought about the idea of a plane, it's someone designing a plane that's never going to (laughs) fly. But you've got these little drawings of them and and the process behind someone investing into the process of registering a patent for it, which is really cool. So, yeah, we work with the historians there who are specialists on these subjects and record them in conversation. 
and then sometimes get people to voice up some of those extracts similar to how we did with the logbook, sort of bring the archive up and become a bit more accessible um, and not just to, you know, experts who know loads talking about what they know loads about in detail, which is quite inaccessible. There's a lot to take on. I'm kind of curious about the logistics before recording an episode of a podcast about archived materials how long does the actual process take to look through archived material because I remember when you put like the screenshot of one of the entries like even the handwriting is really hard to read <laughs> let alone yeah. try to like make sense of it so, so how, how how does that look like it's a good question. It depends on which podcast you're talking about. <laughs> so the logbooks, before I met Adam, I spent two years reading them and then gave a presentation which Adam was at. Then Adam did a hardcore deep dive into the logbooks and read them over a couple of months. When we come to something like the Pink Singers podcast that we're making, there's archive that's being looked at in a very condensed period of time. So I guess it depends how much time you've got. The logbooks we did over a much longer period of time. And then when it comes to the National Archives, we are leaning on historians on that. What we're talking about when we're making that is to someone who's studied that, they've maybe done a PhD on it, it's their role. The logbooks, of course, and lots of queer history doesn't have as many historians and people who are specialists in that area for you to go to and speak to, which I think is the beauty of the Logbooks podcast. But when it comes to the National Archives, they are, are working on these entries already. So what happens is the process around that is that we have a workshop where the historians come and pitch us the ideas, which fun. is fun. Love yeah. that. And the items yeah. that they want to use from the archive, like which records they want to base it on. Oh my God, that's so cool. It's like Dragon's Den. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think we have that much power, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've said no to like two people out of like all of these things, but it's great. And then we work out like the, the story that will be told throughout it. So how we want the episode to be set up and then we'll have like prep calls with them, ask them to give, give us more of those items and go into it. And then, then we script up what we'd like to be said. I suppose that's something that we learned through it, Adam, so far, isn't it? Mm. The scripted side of things that because we're producing an episode or a, a mini series for the national archive, They've got their own restrictions and ethics and things that they do and don't want to include within it. And so getting a script over to them in advance, getting that checked by the historians, by the National Archives in advance of recording it, is really helpful for that side of the process as opposed to post-recording in the edit. And also it can help guide the flow of the episode because people who are experts on things especially you know Adam and I have definitely done this historically you can go off on tangents oh yeah about one thing because it's super super fascinating but actually that's not really relevant to the arc of that story so a lot of prep actually before one episode I want to ask you a question which I feel like I need to phrase properly but I, I've asked a few other of our guests who've kind of really crapped the bed when it came to answering it and I sort of feel like you guys aren't going to at all but it's about the kind of like deliberate representation like making sure that you're representing not just the history of white men which is you know throughout history is what we get the majority of yeah. and just listening to some of you know the projects that you've worked on you know you talked about Windrush you talked about the land army how conscious are you always of making sure that you aren't just going through the archives that will just represent white men uh, it's our bread and butter Rihanna that's our, that's our vibe. Um, we, we pitched ourselves to the National Archives as an example as being people who are, you know, not writing away, not moving away from those stories. They're important. But hey, look, 
let's make space for all of these other ones. And that's what we've done in our work. And that's the stories that we're interested in, these hidden histories, these censored histories that are so linked to political and social change, which is fascinating. Social history is something that Adam and I are, you know, really, really interested in. And I think it's something that is consistently at the back of our heads. What's interesting is a lot of our work comes from communities that are already to you, for want of another, a better word, marginalised or oppressed throughout history. And within that, there's such a consciousness of not being exclusionary within those communities. Uh, so it's something that we're always constantly thinking about. And interestingly enough, I think that those communities think about it more than your generalised white, cis, you know, heterosexual <laughs> person. <laughs> Man, maybe. Um, person man. <laughs> Hello, I'm the average person man. <laughs> it's really it's super important to us, but I I think it's about bringing those people into the project. This is the really important thing. You know, we don't want to go in and start telling the histories that we have no experience of. That's not the right way to do it. We worked on a project called Black and Gay Back in the Day that was in partnership with Mark Thompson, who we met in the logbooks. He's a one of our friends now, I'm happy to say, that he's a black, gay, HIV positive man, works a lot in sexual health. And he started a project with Jason Okendaya and they built up this Instagram account, which was photos of black queer history. And Mark came to us at Aunt Nell and said, hey, look, I know your work. I want to work with you on this project. Now, none of us at Aunt Nell are black, but we wanted to work on that project and we all identify as queer and we felt like, we would work with them in partnership. So as part of that, we worked with Mark and then we brought on a whole team, an assistant producer, as well as, uh, you know, different people for each of the episodes and, and worked in that facilitation role, I suppose, is the best way to describe it when making that. I think that, yeah, that, that's the key thing to going around and doing it. If you want to make something about a community, first thing that you should be doing is speaking to that community and asking them how they want it to be done. And I think that's something that we try to do consistently throughout our work. Just thinking as well about another podcast that we've been working on as Aunt Nell in a sort of consultant producer role is with um, this charity called Inquest. They're a charity that help people through the inquest process, families and individuals who have been victims of state violence from being harmed all the way through to being killed. And they have an archive that they are digging into. They're doing these oral histories and we're now helping them to create a podcast that centers around those stories as well. And that's been a really fascinating process. Having, you know, worked within the charity sector, I know things from that element, but I've never been involved in this side of it. And, you know, the majority of people who are victims of state violence are young black men. And yeah, just that is a really another, it's going to be a fantastic podcast, but it's, a, it's another story. Yeah, another story and another archive that hasn't been shared and, and needs to have its light shined on as well. I'm very aware that we've taken up a lot of your time already. But just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask about your partnership with Queer Britain, because you do seem to be like the hardest working people in podcasting at the moment. <laughs> you seem to be across about 25 different projects. But tell us about this one. Queer Britain, Britain's first LGBTQ plus museum that is based in King's Cross in London. So that is obviously very London centric and um, queer people exist everywhere hopefully on the moon someday as well. One of the next exhibition that Queer Britain wants to do is to 
showcase that national element yeah to the museum and and uh, capture those stories outside of just London or the sort of ones that we know from history that are centered around protests or you know louder activism and that so um queer Britain were part of a, a course from a grant giving body called Missions and Mindsets which was about how you can change things within the what are known as the glam institutions which I'd never heard of galleries libraries and museums it's a great acronym oh I love it <laughs> Yeah. And they invited bids to this grant for, for ways that you could look at how to change things and um, become part of a bigger research project. We partnered with Queer Britain for that bid. And so what it is going to be effectively is a project that's run with Queer Britain and Aunt Nell. And it's going to be looking at how LGBTQ plus voices are represented within GLAM institutions and organisations by working with local history societies and people who are across the UK and will come in as, a, as the podcast element, recording those oral histories uh, and creating a podcast out of the at the end of it that will be um, a sort of third arm to Queer Britain's upcoming exhibition. But it will more pointedly be uh, us working and Queer Britain working with those different institutions to to show the importance of including uh, in in our project LGBTQ plus voices, how that has historically been a sort of oral history in and of itself. If you look back in queer in queer storytelling and queer histories, that you have the the stories and the legacies passed down from generation to generation, um, because it wasn't represented in the history books. And and a pack will be created off the back of that that Queer Britain will will work with another organisation to make that will be a sort of a guide on what we did and what we learned from doing this and working with the different organisations across the UK. Um, that will be available for other glam institutions to look at. And part of that will be surveys that Queer Britain will be leading on, but that looks at how people are feeling in those different areas in relation to inclusion within one of their local museums or libraries or whatever, uh, engaging those people in the process through workshops, um, creating the podcast at the end of it, and then looking at where they feel now in relation to that. So it's a much wider research project um, that's sort of happening alongside the podcast output that Adam and I are going to be a part of. Incredible. Gosh, you really are across absolutely everything. I love how kind of dedicated you are to making as much space as possible for all these different voices. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Tash and Adam. Thank you so much for coming on PodPod. I think this has been one of my favourite interviews so far. So thank you. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, thanks. That was Tash and Adam. I knew they'd be great. Loved talking to them. Reem, what kind of stood out to you about some of the stuff that they were talking about? I feel like we covered so much and all of it was fascinating. And I'm always so inspired by people like Tash and Adam who are doing this so clearly out of a passion and a love and a need to kind of share stories. It feels really like a vocation rather than just a job. I think they're very cool. So yeah, what stood out for you? I loved the interview as well. I thought they were really, really great to speak to. And I found it most interesting how they fund their podcasts because they have multiple different ways, like the Audio Content Fund, uh, which was established by the Radio Centre and Audio UK. And it was a government scheme that funded a number of audio projects, which is unfortunately no longer running. And then some of their other projects were created in partnership with other companies, So it's just multiple different ways that they found 
to support the projects that they were very passionate about. And I think it really shows you how many options there are for podcasters that they can find to give them support, because it is difficult if you're starting completely independently, especially if you want to create something that's of high quality production. So knowing that these schemes are out there and they're meant to support these type of projects, especially the ones that have really good messages, important messages like the Logbooks podcast. It's important for up and coming podcasters to recognize and to also search for. It must be really difficult, I think, being somebody who has to apply for funding time and again. A, it's really time consuming, but also it's really difficult to find which schemes are doing what and at what time of year, etc. So is there like a database that podcasters can go to to have a look for where they might be able to get funds? I'm not sure if there is a database. We have written a feature about it on PopPod about how to get funding. I know that currently Content is Queen, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, they relaunched their microgrants program. Oh yeah, we talked to them about that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so it's officially open for applications now and they're giving up to a thousand pounds for 10 creators and then an additional 500 pounds for 10 other creators to help them with their projects and they're free to do whatever they want with the money as long as they give them a budget plan and the application and then they have to deliver a project on time, but they have the creative control and freedom to do what they want. I know Broccoli Productions is also currently running a scheme where they're giving money for podcasters across five different categories. So things that could help them in terms of marketing or production or whatever area that they're focused on. And then there's the BBC Audio Lab program, which is currently running its second year, but I think they will open applications for the third year at some point this year as well. And that's more of a funding plus mentorship program. So you can come in with an idea and you won't only get funding, but you'll also get a lot of advice and help from the BBC to create a podcast. So it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for something that's more of a hands-off approach and you just need the funding and creative control, then there are ones that are more focused on also giving mentorship along with the funding. So if you need more advice, then that's something to look out for. But yeah, there's multiple different funding schemes available and I think it depends on, on what you need. Amazing. You are a font of all knowledge. That's great. That's really useful. Adam, what about you? You weren't obviously in on the interview, but there must have been quite a lot to take away from it just about the kind of the ethos of podcasting. Mm, absolutely. I was struck by uh, Adam's comments about the kind of shopping lists that commissioners put together and go out looking for. And it it really made me think about whether or not the industry should have a more open pitching process because one of the joys of of podcasting as an industry is that it has so much creativity within it. Yeah, it sounds, you know, that Content in Screen is doing exactly that and there are several other companies doing exactly that. But yeah, I guess the kind of heavyweights of the industry are still in the more traditional mindset of film and TV where they are very specifically looking to commission something in a specific genre. But yes, fingers crossed that, you know, the mindset of these bigger companies will shift towards the creativity of podcasting, as you say. Thank you so much. It's been a really lovely one this week. Really enjoyed talking to Tash and Adam, of course, from the Logbooks. Thank you both for joining me this week. And thank you everybody who is listening. You can find out so much more on podpod.com. As ever, Reem has got loads of articles up there, as has Adam. And you can sign up to our daily email bulletins and follow us on social at podpodofficial. 
I really want to know if you are going to be one of those people who watches their podcasts. I'm just, I find this fascinating. Please let me know. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media. And I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon. I'll see you next week. Cheers. (laughs) 